Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about the biggest political event of this year, the 2016 US presidential election. My name's Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. And I'm joined by Daniel McCarthy, who's the editor of the American Conservative magazine. And he's written an article in this week's Spectator called The Intelligent Case for Trump on why he and 130 other scholars and writers in America have signed a document in support of Donald Trump. So, Dan, I suppose my first question is the Trumpophobia in Britain is so strong that I think very few people could see there is any intelligent case for uh, supporting Donald Trump. So can you explain to a sort of an English limey and probably very hostile audience why you think there's an intelligent case for voting for Donald Trump, an intelligent conservative case for voting for Donald Trump? Well, I should say first that both at the intellectual level and at the grassroots level, there has been a tremendous disappointment among conservatives and Republicans in the performance of the Republican Party over the past 15 years. That uh, if you look at the George W. Bush administration, you look at growth of government under it, you look at uh, the Great Recession and the disaster in Iraq, there is um, a tremendous feeling among intellectuals as well as the grassroots that we cannot repeat these mistakes and that we have to have a profound change on the right in America. So I think uh, it begins with this dissatisfaction with the existing uh, you know, sort of uh, conservative approach and the desire for something radically different and quite new. And Donald Trump represents that. Donald Trump uh, is very clearly someone who is a kind of national conservative. He stands for America having a more um, restrained foreign policy. He stands for uh, a trade policy that would benefit American workers and that would look out for the American public as a whole. And uh, on immigration, he wants to preserve America's existing culture and uh, not use immigration as a tool of transforming the country economically or uh, culturally. But, I mean, how much do you think he actually means any of this? Well, I actually think he does mean those three major themes. And I believe that because these are not themes that anyone before Trump got into the scene, these are not themes that anyone would have expected to be politically popular or successful. So Trump was taking a risk at yeah. the very beginning uh, by embracing these ideas. And in fact, uh, by taking that risk, he's proven successful. And so you think a sort of less interventionist foreign policy was or these that idea was lying dormant in the Republican base for a long time, and it just sort of has exploded into life in the last year or so. Absolutely. I think uh, most Republicans wonder what it is that we're doing uh, in our uh, sort of worldwide interventionism, what it is we're trying to achieve. But it seems odd, doesn't it, that Trump has exploded this and not, you know, a sort of libertarian candidate like Ron Paul. Um, why, why has Trump brought out this populist base vote in a way that no other maverick or outsider Republican candidate has? Well, I think it's two things. Uh, Ron Paul uh, was a sort of precursor to Trump. He showed that there was an enormous amount of Mm. discontent on the right. Um, But Trump has, uh, you know, sort of been a more dynamic character. He's been someone who had a higher media profile uh, than Ron Paul had, certainly at the beginning. And, you know, Trump is willing to talk about some of these cultural issues. He's willing to talk about immigration in a much more forceful way than Ron Paul had. So I think, you know, even though Trump himself is a less articulate messenger of this uh, point of view, uh, that nonetheless, uh, because Trump has talked about these other elements, they become clearer than they were with, uh, uh, with Ron Paul. I think with Ron Paul, people saw him only as a libertarian. With Donald Trump, I think they see him as someone who wants to restore America to greatness. You, but you don't think the inarticulacy is a, is a strength in terms of his popularity among the base, in that if people actually knew what he stood for, they might, these ideas might not be as popular or as sort of media accessible as they were when Ron Paul or, or even Rand Paul was putting them forward. 
Uh, no, I think the, the, the public actually does support uh, the things that Donald Trump says. And it's true that, you know, they may not go in for Austrian economics or they may not go in for, you know, a, a very deep understanding of foreign policy. Mm. But their instincts are with Trump. And uh, I think Trump is, you know, sort of a little bit more than instinctual. I'm not saying that Trump is someone who reads a lot of, uh, you know, foreign policy realist books. Yeah. But he certainly is someone who has a, a sensible, intelligent businessman's view of what's gone wrong in the American economy and foreign policy. But then even as you say, even in the piece, you say that there was this sort of, you know, he'll occasionally say something that seems wildly out there, like, um, you know, we need to go in and seize the oil. Are you sure he's he's a really anti-interventionist figure? Well, I wouldn't say strictly anti-interventionist. What he is, is a guy who wants to intervene less. And if we do intervene, he wants to win, claim some sort of victory, claim some sort of concrete advancement for American interests and then get out. Yeah. Now, of course, he may turn out to find that that's a much easier thing to formulate in the abstract than it is to actually achieve in reality. So I think there is that tension, you're correct. But I do also believe that he's simply not someone who wants to go around with a grand ideological project to turn Iraq or the Middle East into Switzerland. Yeah. And I think in Britain, there's obviously been a lot of obsessing, as there has in America, about Trump's stirring up of white nationalism. To what extent do you think Trump's appeal is white and nationalist. I mean, he's a patriot, obviously, but is he a white nationalist? No, absolutely not a white nationalist. And uh, I think that is a largely hysterical view that has been sort of, if you'll pardon the expression, trumped up (laughs) by the, uh, you know, by the left in America, which is, you know, very much multiculturalist and is very much dedicated to a kind of anti-national view of American politics. Trump does speak for the interests of, you know, older Americans Mm. uh, who also tend to be whiter Americans because, you know, immigration has changed the complexion of the country somewhat over the last, uh, you know, 30 or 50 years. So, uh, you know, Trump's base, yes, it it does have a demographic lean towards being white, but then so did Mitt Romney, so did, uh, you know, John McCain's. And uh, what Trump is really talking about, uh, you know, he's talking about economic issues, he's talking about Immigration, which is not just, you know, a, a whites versus non-whites issue. It's an issue that uh, African-Americans, you know, feel pretty strongly about as well, that um, immigration is something that actually introduces more competition at the lower end of the economic spectrum. And that tends not to be such a favorable thing for black Americans. Do you think that's something he's going to do better on in the next debate? I mean, people have been saying it's going to be more about immigration next debate. Is that going to happen? Uh, that I don't know. You know, I was disappointed by Trump's performance in the first debate. It's hard to say how much the debates really matter with, with the public. Mm. But uh, all of Trump's debates uh, performances have been kind of a roll of the dice. They've been very unexpected. And the results, you know, have not always lined up with one's perceptions. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about F.H. Buckley, no relation to William F. Buckley in the piece. And is it fair to say he is, if there is a sort of brain behind Trump, he seems to be the brain behind Trump? Well, there's no single brain behind Trump. And that's actually one of Trump's virtues is that he has a variety of inputs. He has a lot of people around him of, of quite different ideas. But yes, Frank Buckley has uh, written a number of speeches. And he's you know a, a pretty serious thinker. He's a law professor here in Washington, D.C. No. And, you know, he's one of the signs that Trump will listen to some, uh, you know, very smart and very creative thinkers. How has it happened that someone like F.H. Buckley has become involved in the Trump campaign? How does that how's that played out? Well, in terms of the campaign itself, uh, right now, Buckley is not directly involved with it. He's doing, uh, you know, sort of helping Trump effort from outside of the formal structure of the campaign. And that's important because the campaign has been a little bit shambolic. And, uh, you know, for various uh, campaign finance laws and other things, there are efforts that can be made outside of formal efforts that are more important and more useful than some of the things that campaigns themselves can do. So I, I apologize if that seems a little tangled, but even here in America, people have very little idea of how our election laws actually work and how campaigns actually work. 
they're enormous bureaucracies, and they can be very um, efficient at doing a few things and very inefficient at doing other things. So if you're talking about ideas, it's really better to be outside of a campaign than in it. But I suppose looking at from across the Atlantic, it seems like there isn't really any intellectual coherence behind the Trump campaign. And it seems this sort of almost postmodern joke. I mean, we've read a lot about how the Trump campaign didn't start out as a proper campaign. He was only sort of intending it as a publicity stunt. And then it became, it exploded into life. And so it's odd now to think that there is this sort of serious conservative intellectual movement behind it. To what extent is it part of the conservative movement or a backlash against the way the Republican Party has been going? And to what extent is it just a sort of postmodern joke? Well, you know, I, I, it certainly is not a postmodern joke. On the contrary, I think what you see here are two different models of the way in which ideas uh, interface with politics. Uh, one of these is a kind of central planning model. It's the idea that you start out with some master plan of how all your ideas fit together and uh, which intellectuals are supporting these ideas, and you march forward on that basis. And that's something that the conservative movement in the U.S. has been trying to do now for quite a long time, 30 or 40 years, ever since uh, Ronald Reagan. And then the second approach is entrepreneurial, and it's uh, an approach of discovering things as you go along. And although that may sound as if it's incoherent and is necessarily inferior to a planning model, it's actually not, because politics is very practical. Great issues that one has to deal with change from year to year, and it's figuring out how to apply fundamental principles to a changing political environment is something that requires a lot of creativity, much more creativity, in fact, than we've seen from previous Republican nominees and administrations. The best example of that being George W. Bush, who looked at the world through lenses that were basically formed during the Cold War or, you know, during the uh, sort of 1990s when America had a degree of primacy in the world that really doesn't quite pertain in the same way now. And he looked at the economy as being simply a matter of you cut taxes and then you have prosperity. Those, those ideas proved to be incorrect. Trump may not yet have something that is, um, you know, extremely polished, but I think he has instinctively found the key issues of the 21st century. And that's why he's actually drawn a number of intellectuals, more, I think, uh, conservative intellectuals than not, to his side, because they want to reapply their foundational beliefs to a changing political environment, a radically changing one. So you're saying that the sort of post-Cold War perspective, I suppose the American right tried to take Islam as a sort of replacement for communism as the great threat after 9-11. And that didn't really work. George W. Bush presidency didn't, the war on terror didn't really work in terms of, well, practically, or in terms of making the American right feel that there was, they were behind something important. So are you saying now that that has completely disappeared and that now Trump is talking to a new anti-globalized era? I think that's right. The uh, tendency 15 years ago or 10 years ago was for conservatives to try to approach the war on terror in much the same way as they approached the Cold War, or as they rather wanted to approach the Cold War. America's actual um, approach to the Cold War tended to emphasize containment. It tended to emphasize diplomacy under even Republicans like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. In fact, they were the most triumphant diplomats of the 20th century. Yeah. Instead, when you know 9-11 happened, the conservative movement instantly moved into a hyper-ideological mode, and they thought that uh, military force and ideological purity could easily be combined and that we would be able to transform the Middle East the way we supposedly transformed Germany and Japan after World War II, which is not even true, by the way. Mm. Germany and Japan, first of all, were more law-abiding places than most elements of the Middle East. They weren't you know, sort of socially fragmented in the same way that the Middle East is between tribes and sects. And then the other thing, of course, is that the Germans and Japanese had a tremendous incentive to adopt the uh, habits that, and constitutions that Americans wanted them to adopt 
because the alternative was the Soviets would come in and force the Germans and Japanese to adopt Soviet ways. And faced with that choice, it was clear that America was a much better way to go. And if Donald Trump loses, which polls suggest he probably will at the moment, what happens to Trump support? Well, there will be a uh, civil war on the right, and I think uh, you'll see a tremendous amount of confusion. A number of you know, sort of more conventional Republican politicians will start to say to themselves, could I be successful if I adopted a little bit of Trumpism, if I made myself sound a bit more like Trump? Yeah. But exactly what that will mean in terms of the tone and in terms of the substance of the issues is going to be, again, it's going to be kind of entrepreneurial. People will be throwing things at the wall and just seeing what sticks. As far as the intellectuals are concerned, I think that there are some clear battle lines a lot of them having to do with the nation state itself and whether that's to be protected or whether a kind of right-wing internationalism is to be uh, is to prevail. And do you think Mike Pence seemed to have done pretty well in the debate last night? Do you think he could emerge, assuming Trump loses, he could emerge as a sort of Trump-light figure in the next four years? I, well, I, I tend to think not. There are just so much competition uh, among uh, senators and governors right now to be the next uh, leader of the right that I wouldn't say that Pence necessarily will start from a very um, commanding position. I think there will be as much of a battle in 2020. Trump is such a unique, bizarre figure. It's hard to see anyone sort of comparable and who could excite the base or, or, or whatever it is that Trump's excited in the same way. I mean, I can't think of anyone on that right. Can you think of a figure that might? No, it won't be a, you know, a, a replication of what's happened with Trump. But it's a question of whether people take up some of his issues, whether they start um, you know, talking in the way that he speaks, whether they start interrupting people during debates, for example. And I could see any number of politicians adopting one or another of these elements of Trump. Yes, and he's changed the conversation in the Republican Party in a healthy way. Yes, at least there is a conversation now, which was not the case 10 years ago, where everyone was invested in the George W. Bush administration. And even though it was producing very bad results, no one on the uh, sort of mainstream right wanted to admit it, wanted to say the emperor had no clothes and uh, look for alternatives. A few people like the American Conservative magazine, my magazine, we were willing to speak those uncomfortable truths. But we were pariahs as a result, that we were, you know, uh, what we had to say was not very welcome on the right. I remember. And that's changed. I remember now very well. Now there are real... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, I used to work with you, Dan, I should explain, for the podcast. And actually, as, as a sort of non-Republican Party conservative magazine, it was, I remember, I remember going to CPAC and people were actually very hostile. And it's odd to think that the Trump base actually existed, even though the the Republican Party sort of saw it as anathema to have this anti-interventionist, anti-globalist right. I think some of these uh, gatherings like uh, CPAC and various Republican conventions, uh, they can sometimes be a little misleading because there's so much sort of uh, a groupthink involved. There's so much of a pressure to um, celebrate whatever the party is doing at that time mm. that uh, the, the doubts that people have deep down or the doubts that people have out in the country and in the, uh, the precincts, those don't really come through. And it's, it's generally you know, looked down upon to have any degree of independence at those kinds of events. I suppose that the danger now from your perspective, Dan, is that Trump is actually not just beaten, but beaten quite comprehensively on November 8th. And then the Republican Party will say, well, that was a disaster. Let's go back to doing what we were doing before. Do you think that could happen? Well, you know, it's like close never counts except with uh, horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Uh, maybe nuclear weapons as well. Uh, if Trump loses, uh, so what? Uh, you know, Mitt Romney lost. John McCain lost. One of the biggest losers in American political history was Barry Goldwater. Yeah. And no conservative worth his salt would say that Barry Goldwater was, his ideas should have been repudiated because he performed so badly at the polls. Yes. Similarly, on the left, um, you can look at George McGovern, who was wiped out in the 1972 election. And yet McGovern's ideas are now you know, pretty deeply entrenched in the uh, Democratic Party. 
So being a loser at the polls doesn't necessarily mean that you lose the war of ideas. So you think these disaster nominees, in a way, these electorally disastrous nominees, they become a sort of crucible in which a new politics is formed. Exactly right. They're entrepreneurial and they are ahead of the market, so to speak. And so their product might fail, but in the end, people find ways to make it more popular and more palatable, and it becomes uh, the wave of the future. Well, I suppose we'll see what happens after November. Thanks very much, Dan. That's all we've got time for, I think. But just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes from now. And thanks very much. Uh, Listen to us next time. (laughs) 